Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hi, it's Erica Cruz Guevara here, producer for The Bay. Just a quick warning. This episode includes language that some may find offensive. Would you please stop? Please stop. Please stop. There's this one Vallejo City Council meeting from May this year that really gave me pause. When you start watching, it's really hard to look away. It's intense. Just the week before, Vallejo police had released body camera footage from the February 2018 shooting death of Ronnell Foster, who police stopped for riding his bike without a light. The mayor called up an activist named Jamelia Land, who signed up to speak. She's draped in an American flag with the names of people shot and killed by police. She walks up and addresses council members. How safe will your tourists feel when they know that you have officers like Ryan McMahon who shot and killed Ronnell Foster and a year less than a week later, he was involved in the execution of Willie McCoy. Seeing this meeting in the news, this sense of outrage and passion, was one of the first things that really got me interested in figuring out what is going on in Vallejo. We are going to go into recess until this concludes. We stand in recess. Here's what's been happening in Vallejo. People of color have been shot and killed by the police. And residents and families of those victims have had enough. And it's not just police shootings, which have been driving people to protest there since at least 2012. It's also everyday run-ins with Vallejo police officers that for years have added to a sense of mistrust that's blowing up in City Hall. So how did it get this bad? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Welcome to the Bay. The tensions with Vallejo police today can be traced back to 2008, when the city became the first of its size to file for bankruptcy in the state of California. State leaders have made it clear if there's one thing they want to avoid, it's what's happened in Vallejo, California, in their grueling three-year journey through the bankruptcy process. In 2008, the city had some tough choices to make. Most of the city's budget was made up of police and firefighter salaries, pensions, and overtime. 80% of the city budget was its ballooning payroll. 
Now, the city could no longer afford the contracts it had with its employees. City employees and city officials were at each other's throats. What had an impact on the entire city, not just the police department? That's Osby Davis. He was Vallejo's mayor for 10 years and throughout the bankruptcy. Davis says negotiations with police and firefighters lasted till the 11th hour before the city decided to file for bankruptcy. The city was in financial ruin. We lost employees. The police department lost, uh, when I came into office, it was 126 and it went down to 77 police officers. We stopped putting any money into our streets and roads, uh, no money into infrastructure, um, no raises for any employees. Um, We were just in dire straits. Businesses closed, people lost their homes. There was an exodus of officers at the police department that put additional pressures on the ones who stayed. Uh, My name is Brenton Garrick. I was a police officer in the city of Vallejo for approximately 30 years. Garrick retired just this May. He worked at the department during the bankruptcy. He was commander of the hostage negotiation team, managed community engagement, and grants. He had a lot of jobs at the department over the years, and when things got really dire, he'd take on a handful of roles at once. You know, we have a very low staff department um, that came as a result of, of financial strain within the city, and as a result, we had to pick up the slack and the duties of others that were no longer present, you know, jobs that had basically either been outsourced or eliminated. Garrick says a lot of the ones who stayed were putting in a lot of overtime. Some days he would clock in and not know who he'd be working with that day. Working at the department had just become unpredictable and fragmented. And so you didn't have a consistency um, and, you know, continuity uh, within the department. And that produced, um, you know, a a situation where, you know, I'd kind of describe it as a perfect storm where you don't have a good sense of direction, uh, policy, procedure, uh, you know, training to a certain degree began to lack um, because of budget constraints. And, you know, that can very well affect public's perception of a department. Garrick says the city had less money to send officers to training outside of the department. Before bankruptcy, he said the department required its officers to go to a range to practice shooting upwards of six times a year, more than what was required by the state. Garrick says shooting is a perishable skill, like muscle memory. But budget cuts meant fewer trips to the range. And officers began to worry that the cutbacks to training were creating a liability for the city. I remember hearing some of the conversations, wow, you know, look what the city is doing to us, man, they're going to get someone killed. And sure enough, in 2011, uh, that came to fruition. In 2011, Officer James Lowell Caput was shot and killed in the line of duty. Brent remembers this feeling among officers at the department at the time, that Officer Caput's death was a result of bankruptcy and low staffing at the department. And people were really impacted by that and hurt by that and upset by that. And it was, it was a, a very turbulent time and um, almost painful to even think about because, you know, as a result, I mean, a lot of people feel that, you know, officers were out there on a killing spree. And, and that was so far from the truth. 
I want to pause on something Garrick just said here, that there were a lot of people who felt like officers were out in Vallejo on a killing spree. People really did feel this way. Because the next year, 2012, there were six fatal shootings by Vallejo police, the deadliest year of police shootings there in the last 14 years. There was something wrong in Vallejo. That year, the city budgeted for about 85 police officers, but Garrick says there were only around 76 cops patrolling the city, an all-time low for the department. The staffing levels had a direct impact on the officers in the field. For example, in 1990, Garrick says that if he asked for backup on a domestic violence or suspicious persons call, he would have had anywhere from four to six officers show up. But by 2012, many officers were dealing with those situations alone. And so Garrick says it was more common that they were entering situations afraid. So you can imagine there was a fear factor, um, you know, that was going on, I'm sure, in in many of these officers' minds. Because the reality is, you know, we don't know what's behind that closed door. At the time, the department pointed to skyrocketing crime rates in the city. And crimes did increase, almost 10% from the year before. But Vallejo, even with its smaller population, still had more shootings in 2012 than big Bay Area cities, also dealing with high crime rates. That year, Oakland had one fatal officer-involved shooting, and San Francisco had two. In Vallejo, there were six. Vallejo hasn't seen a year of police shootings that bad since 2012. So what makes the recent police shootings in Vallejo of Angel Ramos, Ronald Foster, and Willie McCoy feel different now? Now that the videotapes have come out, um, it's just it's, it's different. Melissa Nolt is an attorney with the law offices of John Burris. They've represented the families of people shot by Vallejo police in lawsuits against the city and the police department. Nolt is also a Vallejo native. Most of us are raised to, to believe the police are, are here to help us and that they're good and, and, and that they are their heroes. But videos are challenging those ideas. It's changing because now you have this objective thing. You can no longer say, well, a person did, like we see now here, they've said, you know, a person did X, but then we see the videos and they actually did Y, and it's something totally different. And so I think people are willing to say, you know what, they haven't been as forthcoming as we would like them to have been in the past. I should say here that videos are one-dimensional. They don't show everything, and they often lack context. But there's no doubt that bystander and body camera footage have changed the way Americans watch policing happen, in a way that's challenging how we think about justice and fairness and law in this country. It's challenging what we're taught to believe is true. Think about it. In 2009, cell phone video captured a BART police officer who said he mistook his gun for a taser and killed Oscar Grant at the Fruitvale BART platform. 2014, we watched Eric Gardner say, I can't breathe, as New York police held him in a chokehold. And in 2015, we saw video of a North Charleston police officer shooting Walter Scott in the back as he ran away. And there are so many more. These shootings have partly led to a cultural awakening nationwide, an awakening to the ways black and brown folks are disproportionately gunned down by police. Nolt says this awakening, it's happening among residents in Vallejo. And they're waiting for their city leaders to wake up too. 
it's unfortunate because I, because it, it makes to some degree it makes us all sort of uh, laughing stock of the country because we have this what seems to be a pretty profound issue of, of violence and un- unlawful policing and the, the the people that could do something about it instead are saying I don't I don't see a problem I don't and like, how do, and, and the question is how do you not see the problem um, the only way to not see it is to close your eyes. Nold says the problem is costing the city and taxpayers money. The city of Vallejo was paying so much in legal settlements related in part to cases against its police department that it impacted its relationship with an agency that's basically served as an insurance company for the city for about three decades. It's called the California Joint Powers Risk Management Authority. Think of it like insurance, but for cities. But by 2017, documents from the authority show that Vallejo had become a liability. In a December 2017 meeting, the agency discussed how Vallejo's losses are, quote, large and disproportionate compared to the other members. The city manager, Greg Nyoff, told me that the authority planned to charge more for its insurance because of, quote, a lack of risk management oversight and accountability generally. So kind of like how bad drivers get charged more for car insurance for getting into a lot of crashes. And so because of the cost of all these lawsuits, the city joined another insurance pool. I mean, how can they approve these multi-million dollar settlements and never ever for one second look in the mirror and go, hey, what's going on? That's Dan Russo. He's been a criminal defense attorney in Vallejo since 1978. And in 2018, one of his clients settled a case against the police department for $2.5 million. You know, are we unlucky? Are we just having a bad run of luck? Or is there some fundamental basic problem that is more transcendent than a bad apple? What makes you think that they aren't asking themselves those questions? Because they're not doing anything, because I don't see anything. I see escalating violence. I see escalating uh, uh, mistreatment of, of citizens. Russo believes city leaders aren't living up to their obligation and responsibility to hold its police officers accountable, not just when it comes to police shootings, but also allegations of harassment, false arrests, and intimidation. All these lawsuits and complaints about police happening on top of these high-profile police shootings. Those calls I get every day, the profiling, you know, the, the disrespect, the disregard. Here's one example. Nold represented a man named Nicholas Pitts who filed a lawsuit against the city and VPD for an incident that took place on April 4th, 2016. Pitts was living in a downtown Vallejo apartment. According to the lawsuit, he was taking out his trash when Vallejo police officers Ryan McLaughlin and Matthew Komoda pull up. They run up and snatch him and they start, you know, swinging him around. He's going, what are you doing? And he's just literally, literally taking out his garbage. Um... Ended up hitting his head into a pole, pulling his, um, you know, injuring his arms, ripping, um, ripping his, some of his dreadlocks out of his hair. According to the lawsuit, officers told Pitts's landlord that he was being detained for a parole violation. Pitts had never been to jail and had no criminal history, the lawsuit said. He was ultimately charged with jaywalking, despite never stepping foot on the street. Charges that were dropped, according to the lawsuit. Nolt said this incident cost him his job. Lawsuit alleged officers racially profiled Pitts while he was simply attempting to take out his garbage. It cost the city more than $17,000 to settle the case. 
So a lot of people don't actually file a formal complaint process. A lot of um, a lot of folks are just going sort of straight to litigation. They're con- contacting lawyers because they realize that filing, you know, filing complaints, it doesn't result in anyone getting in trouble and kind of makes a target on their back. Nold says these cases are examples of what happens in Vallejo on a daily basis. And when she hears about these things, she can't help but think that Vallejo police officers are afraid, that they fear the people that they police. A black man is approached and they call him bruh or bud or something like that. A white man of the same age would be sir. And so those kind of situations spark um, spark the, the, the discontent between the you know communities and, and it creates um, animosity and then things just escalate from there. What Nold has heard so far from city councilors has been unsatisfying. She says they can't hide their heads in the sand anymore. She said others believe change in the city is going to take facing the issue head on. But I'm not sure city leaders believe there's a problem to face. Mayor Council, I know it's late, but I'm a couple things I just wanted to, to, to say to you and um, cover. There was an interview that I did uh, recently that actually was on an interview for 35 minutes. And I think I got 35 seconds that actually plugged into a story. At a city council meeting on June 25th of this year, city manager Greg Nyoff spent a couple of minutes sharing information he says was not included in an interview he did for a local TV station about policing in Vallejo. When I um, took a look at those numbers, and I think we shared them recently, they're very profound, especially when you go out and you do ride-alongs, which I know most of you have done. Those are, my opinion, those are those don't seem like there's an excessive use of force or a lot of use of force in our community. He pointed out that in years like 2016, for example, there were more than 69,000 calls made to police in Vallejo. That same year, there were about 150 use of force incidents. And as a city manager who's been in managing cities larger than this, with larger than larger police departments, there are people that just resist. There are people that have mental illnesses that you just have to use force to um, sometimes for, for their own health and well-being. But when you look at these numbers and people, you know, and, and people I talk to close to me, like it sounds like it's really a, a big amount of use of force. That, that's, that is such a, a tiny number when you think about how many times our officers interact with the public. In response to an email I sent to Nyoff last month, he said he wanted to wait for an independent consultant's review of the department before he comes to, quote, any conclusions regarding the extent of needed improvements. The city hired the California-based OIR group to do that review, which started in July. Attorney Melissa Nold says this is what's frustrating to residents, that the city isn't willing to admit that there's a problem with policing in Vallejo, a problem that's driving people to protest at City Hall. And I wanted to understand where city councilors were coming from. That's why I reached out to all of them. But I didn't get a sit-down interview with any of them. So I asked someone who was on the city council during that particularly hard year at the police department— former Vallejo Mayor Osby Davis. Remember, Davis is the one who made the call on bankruptcy. He was the mayor in 2012, when VPD had its highest number of police shootings, six. Davis has an idea of the kind of pressure the mayor and city council is under right now. You're just as concerned as the public is about any um, outcries of excessive force. Anybody is. But there is a process that you have to go through, and the public is never satisfied with that. 
The city manager, Greg Nyoff, referred to this process in emails to me, too, when I asked about how the city holds its police officers accountable. Nyoff said it's a well-defined process, one that the city supports. Officer conduct is reviewed in every officer-involved shooting in Solano County, he said. And yet another process is the legal one, the lawsuits filed after shootings or brutal arrests. And it's been my experience that when these processes are underway, it's pretty common to hear elected officials say no comment, or in this story's case, nothing. We spoke to one local police chief who didn't want to be recorded, but he told us saying sorry to a family for their loss isn't admitting guilt. And Davis says it's important to do that, to communicate with the families of people shot by police, to at least acknowledge people's pain, recognize that it exists. Why do you think that that's important? Because if you don't do that, you, you, you end up with an us and them. It's the police department and it's the community. And really they are one because the police department is supposed to protect the community. Well, you don't have a whole lot of faith in the police department that don't talk to you at all about anything. And the only time you see them is when there's a crisis in your community. That does not foster a relationship. The job of a police officer is to respond to crime, crisis, people's worst days. And so that's who police officers see on a day-to-day basis. And that's why Brent Garrick, the retired sergeant we spoke to earlier, said one of the biggest things he's tried to impress on officers before he left the department was to get out of their cars, get to know the people they're policing. I think um, if there's one message that I've tried to get across to people is despite all the negativity and criminal activity that we deal with as officers, I try to remind them that there are still and will be always good people in the city of Vallejo. There are more good people than there are bad people. And those are the people that we work for. And we we can't alienate ourselves um, from those people. And, And unfortunately, the job causes you to become alienated because as officers, um, I, I've experienced it before too earlier on in my career where I felt like everyone hated me. You know, everyone was against me. And you're just this one man or this one woman driving through a neighborhood in a car alone with 20 people glaring at you on, on the streets. And uh, it's an unnerving feeling um, and it puts you on edge. Community engagement is huge for Garrick. He was born and raised in Vallejo, and he says that served him well in his career because he believes that if you don't understand the communities that you serve, there's a certain level of fear on both sides. But by the time he left the department, just a few officers had gone to school or grew up in Vallejo or had families in Vallejo. The police department wasn't able to provide us with where its officers are from. But for Melissa Nold, that kind of intimacy with the community can be a matter of life or death. We're worried about doing training on, on force when we really need to be tra- you know, doing training on getting to know the people in the communities and the sounds and the smells and the touches because it's very difficult, just from a psychological perspective, it's very difficult to kill people that you know. You know, people that look like people that you know. It's very easy to kill the other. Nold sees these all as resolvable issues. Now it's a matter of finding someone to fix them. And Vallejo has an opportunity for that. Vallejo Police Chief Andrew Badu retired just this past June, and the city is looking for its next police chief. 
But when I asked the city manager what he's looking for in a police chief, he wouldn't say. Instead, he said he's much more interested in what the community is looking for in a police chief right now. In emails, Nayef acknowledged that residents want a chief who can hold police officers accountable, someone who can talk about tough issues and make tough decisions, even if they're unpopular, and that people want a good listener, someone who can collaborate and unite the community. At a city council meeting in June, Alicia Sadler, Angel Ramos's sister, told city councilors what she's looking for in a police chief. I was there at that meeting, and I could just tell she was making a sincere plea. Nayaf, I have faith that you will choose a chief that will hold his officers accountable. And I beg and plead with you that you do the right thing. If you bring the right chief in, things can change. And our loved ones can get justice. And nobody else's family will have to feel the pain that me and all these family members have to feel. So please, from the bottom of my heart, I know I come here and I yell and I scream, but it's because I'm hurt. And you have the... You have the power to change that. So please, I'm begging you from the bottom of my heart, please. Thank you. Thank you. When I was sitting there watching Alicia say this, it made me think. Vileoans have to believe it's going to get better to keep going. It's kind of the only way until things do. This series was reported and written by me. Our editor is Erica Aguilar. Devin Karayama is our producer. We got help from Ashley Ann Krigbaum, Amanda Font, Julie Kane, and our intern, Teresa Wu. If you enjoyed this series, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the episode with friends or on social media. Also, we love hearing from you. Send us an email at thebay at kqed.org. And you can always reach us on Twitter. We're at thebayKQED. The Bay is made at KQED Public Radio. It's listener support that helps make reporting and podcasts like this one possible. So thank you. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Thanks for listening. See you Monday. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.